Hello, friends, and welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm so glad that you're tuning in with us. If this is your first time listening or you'd just like to reach out, feel free to shoot an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. Well, it's December, and we're getting close to Christmas, and I love this time of year. The family gets together more often. We have what I think is a legitimate excuse to eat lots of cookies and candy. I love getting to cook, so it's just the perfect time of year for me. But another reason this time of year is so special is because we're entering into the season of Advent. Now, Advent is a word that just means arrival. The Advent, the arrival of Jesus, is something that people have looked forward to, waited for, and expected for so very long. And we join millions of Christians today as we look at the one who is long expected. Here's our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. Good morning. This is called an Advent wreath. For centuries, actually back about 1,300 years, I believe, Christians have been looking at the four weeks leading up to Christmas as the Advent, which literally means the coming or the arrival. And it kind of takes us back to the time when they were expecting the coming of the Messiah, the arrival of the Messiah leading up to the birth of Jesus. For Christians, we also give it another little bit of a dimension that we expect him to come back. We are waiting for him to come back the second time. Now, all of the colors on the Advent wreath mean something. You've got the green here, which is a a color of hope and new and everlasting life. And you've got the purple, which is both the color of royalty, Jesus, but also they put a royal robe on his shoulders when he was being beaten before the cross. And so for us Christians, it's always been a color of penitence, a time when we remember how much we owe him. Then you've got pink or rose, the color of joy, and then you've got this white, which is the symbol of purity for Christians. You can see there's great meaning in this Advent wreath, and one thing is there's a wreath, and all wreaths are made in a circle. They've kind of been woven together with limbs, and to remind us that God has no beginning and no end, and then the candles that will be lit kind of up to Christmas reminds us that He's the light of the world. Each candle that's lit each week is going to have some significance. The, the first that we're going to light is one about expectation and hope. The others will be peace and love and joy. And then, as Doc said, the one that kind of right here, this white one, is called the Christ candle. And it's right here in the center to remind us that Jesus is the center. He really is the reason for Christmas. So you're going to see around our church a lot of different Christmas decorations, and they're kind of cool. But the fact is, this is going to stay front and center on our stage the whole month of December, because we want to remind everybody that this is the reason that we celebrate this Christmas. This is the center of the season. And so we want to just keep it here, and we're going to light one of these candles each week. And we'd also encourage you to do something this year to make sure that He is the center of this season.
So is there anybody here who is excited that Christmas is coming? Yeah, we have three of you. That is so cool. Some of our kids are actually counting it down, right? We've already passed Black Friday and Cyber Monday, so I guess it's officially on. I've got to tell you that we have some incredibly annoying people in our church staff. They really are. You know, the fact is they would be playing music out loud in the office on September if we let them. We don't, because I'm kind of the Grinch on the staff, and they're just lines you can't cross. Have you ever, have you ever heard of the Christmas creep? I'm not talking about the guy who hangs out in the toy department at Walmart. <laughs> I'm talking about, I mean, you can literally Google this, the Christmas creep, and, and it's where stores start slipping the holiday merchandise onto the shelves earlier and earlier, right? I mean, I know there are some retailers who actually do wait until Black Friday, but others put up Christmas displays right after Halloween. And there are a lot of other retailers like Walmart and Sam's and Costco and Lowe's that are actually, you're going you're gonna to find Christmas stuff out, holiday stuff out, even in September. You know why? <laughs> because Christmas sales can either make or break their year. And people who research this stuff discover that people who just start doing their holiday shopping well before Halloween. And so the retailers want your dollars. Here's another tidbit that I found. I found in an article last week, it was actually repeated in a couple of places, it says that 28% of the Christmas shoppers this year are still in debt from their Christmas shopping last year. Isn't that incredible? Almost a third of us haven't even paid off last Christmas, and we're getting ready to do it again. Sometimes we're not very bright. So Christmas is kind of like D-Day. December the 25th, the day that can make or break a business, the day that can make or bankrupt a family, the day that can capture or crush a kid's heart, the day, kind of, sort of, a little bit, maybe, that we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, our creator, the entrance into his world. December the 25th. We don't really know what day Jesus was born. We kind of pick that one out. It's as good as any, I suppose. December the 25th, 2018. That 2018 is supposed to represent the number of years since Jesus' birth. That's probably not quite accurate either, believe it or not. When they uh, calculated the calendar centuries ago, they probably got the date off by a couple of years, but it's close enough. So it's weird, isn't it? Every time you write down the date, you are doing homage to the birth year of Jesus. 2018 A.D. A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. B.C., before Christ. A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. There are people today who want to get away from that language. They don't like writing in the year of our Lord, so they use B.C.E. and C.E. before the Common Era and the Common Era, but it still hinges on the birth date of Jesus. It's the centerpiece. Here's why. Because there never, ever, ever has been another birth like this one which legitimately forms the turning point, the dividing line of history. Nobody ever suggested changing the calendar after I was born. That wouldn't work, would it? Then you have BS and AS. Before, <laughs> I know, I know. Before Steve and after Steve. <laughs> now only, only Jesus could be that important to be the dividing line of history, which is something we kind of admit every time we write down the date. It goes even further than that. Nobody was writing about my birth in advance, except maybe my mom, for about eight or nine months, right? 
And I suppose there are a few other people eagerly anticipating my arrival for a few months. But no one was writing about the birth of Steve 10 to 24, 20 years before it ever happened. There may be a few royal births where people kind of look in advance for a few years hoping for that child. But with Jesus, there was literally over 2,000 years of waiting. 2,000 years of waiting. People of God had actually been expecting his birth for literally millennia. They had been writing about it, little details, literally for millennia. No other birth in history has been so long expected. No other birth has ever been written about with such detail in advance for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, that may be one of Christianity's best kept secrets, though it shouldn't be. There were these guys writing beforehand, we call them prophets. And if their amazing prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus, then guys, he deserves a hearing. I mean, just think of it this way. If there's a guy who can actually predict his death, I mean, that's not that hard, but, and then predict his resurrection and it happens, he probably merits a hearing. Well, if all of these prophecies were literally fulfilled by Jesus, then I think that we ought to pay attention to what he says. So we're starting a four-sermon series this morning on the birth stories of Jesus. Not the birth story, the birth stories of Jesus, because there are four of them in our New Testament, each of them unpacking the birth of Jesus from a slightly different perspective, a different angle. They're not contradictory, they're just different, and every single one of them is mind-blowing. And if they are true, if they are true, then Christmas is way bigger than Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and Santa Claus. We're going to be looking at the birth stories of Matthew, Luke, John, and the book of Revelation. Believe it or not, there's a birth story in the book of Revelation too. So we're going to start with the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible app on your phone or your tablet, look up the Gospel of Matthew. If you've got one of those old-fashioned paper Bibles, we kind of leave the lights up for you in the corners. You can go back there, find the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have an app on your phone, I really want to suggest again the YouVersion Bible app. You can find it in your app store. It's great and it's free, okay? Matthew chapter 1. Let me read the first few verses, starting with verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Holy cow. Matthew goes on like this for 17 verses. 40 generations. It bores the bejiggers out of most people. In fact, a lot of people make this New Year's resolution to read their Bible, and a lot of people start with the Gospel of Matthew. I don't know that any passage in the Bible has killed more Bible reading resolutions than the genealogy in Matthew, except maybe the book of Leviticus. Because Matthew wasn't writing to us first. He was writing to Jews. He was writing to Jews who were expecting, who were waiting for a Messiah. And every one of those Jews knew that the Messiah was going to have to be a child of Abraham and he was going to have to come out of the line of David. They all knew that. This is a record. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of David, 
son of Abraham. In other words, this one could be the Messiah. This is a big deal. He's qualifying Jesus in the opening verses as a Messiah candidate. In any case, as soon as Matthew's done with the genealogy, he gets on with the story. Verse 18, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. And he starts telling a story. All right? You've got these two backwater Galilean peasants, Joseph and Mary, who are engaged to be married. Mary gets pregnant. Back then, that is really, really, really scandalous. Joseph, because he knew he hadn't done it, he hadn't, uh, he hadn't uh, gotten the child, gotten Mary pregnant, he decides to divorce her. Back then, if you're engaged, you don't just break a, an engagement by taking the ring back or that kind of thing. You actually have to go through a divorce. So he decides to do that. And that's when an angel shows up in a dream. It's in a dream, but somehow Joseph knows that this is God speaking to him. Angel says to Joseph, Joseph, marry the girl. Just do it. This child wasn't conceived by some other guy. This child was conceived by the Spirit of God. This is God's child. And you're going to call him Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, Jesus, which means the salvation of God, the salvation of God. Mary is going to birth the Savior. And then here it is. Here's the first place of five in Matthew's story of the birth of Jesus where he talks about Jesus' birth fulfilling prophecy. All this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. We're going to see this kind of thing five times in Matthew's birth story. And then he gives us the message of the prophet. Look, the virgin's going to conceive a child. She's going to give birth to a son and they're going to call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which literally means God is with us. In other words, this child is the child you've been waiting for. This child is the child that Isaiah the prophet wrote about 700 years ago. This is the child of your Bible expectations. Now, you may not know about the prophecy of Isaiah, but the Jews in the time of Matthew did. It's in their Bible. Isaiah had said, this is the prophet writing 700 years before Jesus, the Lord himself is going to give you the sign. The virgin will conceive a child, she'll give birth to a son, she'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And Matthew says, this is it. This is he. In fact, two chapters later, Isaiah is going to say a couple of other things about this child, which are just mind-blowing. You've seen these verses before, probably not in the, in the prophet Isaiah. He writes this, for a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government's going to rest on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. He will be called Mighty God. They're going to call this child Mighty God. You know how odd that is for Jews? They'll call him the Everlasting Father. They're going to call him the Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never, ever end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David as the Messiah for all eternity. And the Isaiah, the prophet, wrote those words 700 years before Jesus was born. Well, Matthew goes on with the story. There are these wise guys, these magi, these pagan astrologers who show up from the east, right? They're looking for the newborn king of the Jews because they'd seen some kind of astrological phenomenon, something in the sky that led them to the conclusion that God's Messiah had been born. I don't know what it was. They came to do homage to the child. They came to worship the child. Pretty incredible. 
What happens next is even more incredible. They come looking for the child. They're not sure exactly where he's going, so where they're going. So they go to Herod, who's the king. They figure he'll know where the next king is born. Herod, the king, hears about it. He gets bent out of shape because it's not his kid. Calls a confab of his priests and he says, where is the Messiah king supposed to be born? Where does the Bible say, where did the prophets say that the Messiah king was supposed to be born? Guess what the prophets said? They said it's, well, Bethlehem. It's Bethlehem. You know why they said that? Because 700 years before Jesus, a prophet by the name of Micah had predicted that the Messiah would be born there. He said, a ruler is coming. A ruler is coming. A ruler who's going to shepherd my people Israel. The great shepherd. He's going to be born in Bethlehem in the land of Judah, which is right outside Jerusalem. Think about that. A virgin's going to have a baby. They're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God to us. He's going to be born in a little town called Bethlehem, the prophet said, 700 years before Jesus The story goes on. Herod, who's the Jewish king, sends the wise men to find this Messiah. He says, go find him, and when you find him, send back word as to exactly where he is so I can come and worship him too. Herod's lying like a dog. It's fake news. Somehow the the star the Magi was following led them directly to Bethlehem, to the Christ child, and they're ecstatic. You know the story. They open up their gifts, and they've got gold, and they've got frankincense and myrrh, which are these two extraordinarily expensive spices. And then the angel of God comes back. Comes back to Joseph in a dream and says, you need to get Jesus out of here. Herod is coming and he's going to kill the baby. He's going to kill the baby if he finds him. So I want you to go down to Egypt and wait there until I call you back. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus go. They left at night to be as covert as possible. They traveled south to Egypt where Herod had no power. They stayed there until he died. How did these two peasants afford that? Probably the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh that were given to them by the Magi because God has a way of taking care of his people. And then here it is again. Matthew says, did you know that even this part was foreshadowed in the Old Testament? Did you know that that's what the Old Testament was showing us? It was foreshadowed by the words of a prophet by the name of Hosea, who wrote 750 years before the time of Jesus. Eight centuries before Jesus, God says, out of Egypt, out of Egypt, I call my son. First time he said that, it was about Israel in the Exodus. Matthew says it's also about Jesus when God called him out of Egypt. Well, what happens when Herod realizes that the wise men double-cross him? They don't send him back message. He committed one of the most hideous crimes in history. We don't, he didn't know that Mary and Joseph and Jesus had escaped down to Egypt. He thought they were still in Bethlehem. So he sends his soldiers to Bethlehem with the orders that they're going to kill every single boy under the age of two years old. Kill them all. We don't know how many babies he murdered. Scholars estimate that because of the size of the town of Bethlehem, maybe 20 or so kids were murdered. It's hideous to try to eliminate a potential rival. And Matthew does it again. It's amazing. He says, even this massacre was foreshadowed 600 years before Jesus by another prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet says, a cry was heard in Ramah, which is right outside of Bethlehem. 
Weeping and great mourning. No kidding. Rachel weeps for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they're dead. Over and over again, details of the birth story of Jesus are foreshadowed by pieces of the Old Testament story. That's big. One more. Herod dies. Joseph and Mary and Jesus return from Egypt. They don't go back to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. They go where? Go to Nazareth, north, Galilee. Matthew says that fulfills another prophet who said he will be called a Nazarene. It's a big deal. This was a real big deal to the Jews that Matthew was telling this birth story to. It's a big deal to us. Name someone else. Name anyone else whose birth was eagerly anticipated for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Name anyone else for whom so many of the even details of his birth were foreshadowed centuries before it ever happened. Guys, if this stuff is true, if God really had been dropping breadcrumbs that pointed to Jesus for centuries, then you need to pay attention to him. You need to listen to this guy. He deserves a hearing. Don't get sidetracked by tinsel and glitter. Don't get sidetracked by Black Friday and Cyber Monday. If this stuff is true, Christmas is about way, way more than any of that. And guys, what Matthew does in the birth story of Jesus is just the tip of the iceberg. Writers of the New Testament tell us about how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. It's uncanny. If you search the web and you go to a place called jesusfilm.org and you go to their little section called blog and stories and you start scrolling through to it until you get to January the 4th, 2018 AD, you eventually make it to this little article, 55 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. There's way more than that in the Old Testament, but they just picked out these 55 that are all mentioned very clearly in the New Testament. I'm going to just give you a few of them. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, call of Abraham. Abraham's just this nomad, tiny little family, remote part of the world. He says, all of the families on earth are going to be blessed through you. And the Jews who studied that promise believe that that's going to come through the Messiah a descendant of Abraham, which is why Matthew, the way, why Matthew opens his book. This is a record of the ancestors of David and of Abraham. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, he had to be from the family of Abraham through the line of David. Through the line of David because of the next prophecy, 2 Samuel 7, 16. See, God had promised David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. Forever, for all time, your throne's going to be secure forever. And the Jews believed that that promise was about the Messiah. The Messiah was coming. He had to be from the family of David. He had to be through the line, I mean, from the family of Abraham through the line of David. They also knew that God would be sending somebody before the Messiah, somebody who kind of looked and sounded like Elijah the prophet. They knew that because of Malachi the prophet. Malachi says, I'm sending you the, the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. Jesus tells us, that's John. That's John the Baptist. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. We're going to hear more about him next week. 
But I've already shown you some of the prophecies about the birth, that he was going to be born in Bethlehem, that he was going to be born to a virgin. Um, Jesus couldn't manufacture those two, by the way. He couldn't have set those kind of things up. We've already looked at the prophecies that said he'd go down to Egypt, be called out of Egypt, and end up in Nazareth. Jesus then eventually starts doing Messiah stuff. When he does Messiah stuff, he starts doing all of these miracles because the prophets had predicted centuries ago that when the Messiah came, he'd be working all of these miracles. Here's Isaiah the prophet. He says when he comes, he's going to open the eyes of the blind. He's going to unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame are going to leap like deer and those who can't speak are going to sing for joy. Sometime in the story, John the Baptist is going to end up in prison. And he's going to send back a message. Are you really the one, Jesus? You know what Jesus tells him? He says, the eyes of the blind are being opened, just like Isaiah said. Ears of the deaf are being unplugged. The lame are leaping like deer, and the dumb are singing with joy. This is it. This is it, guys. Jesus went around speaking in parables. It's one of the most famous things about the teaching of Jesus, because the prophets had said that that's what the Messiah was going to do. The psalmist said, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to speak to you in parables. I'm going to teach you hidden lessons from the past. He spoke in parables and the people wouldn't listen. They were stubborn. Even that was predicted by the prophets. Isaiah the prophet put it like this. Harden the hearts of these people. Plug their ears. Shut their eyes. That way they're not going to see with their eyes. They're not going to hear with their ears. They're not going to understand with their hearts. And turn to me for healing. And when the people struggle to listen to his parables, this is exactly what he quoted. This fulfills that prophecy. When we start getting to the, close to the death of Jesus, the prophecies are mind-blowing. You ever wondered why Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in what we call the triumphal entry? People didn't go up into Jerusalem at festival times on a donkey. They walked. Jesus chose a donkey. Because he knew about Zechariah the prophet who wrote 500 years before the time of Jesus. And Zechariah said this, look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, but he's humble, riding on a donkey and on a donkey's colt. So Jesus does. Later on, Zechariah foreshadows Judas with the betrayal of Jesus when Judas betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah, under the guidance of God, takes 30 coins, 30 pieces of silver, throws them into the potter's place in the temple, just like Judas would do 500 years later. <clears throat> then you get to passages like Isaiah 53, and it'll just blow your mind. It's almost ridiculous when you start reading Isaiah 53 and thinking about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. Listen to what it says. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, the Messiah. Nothing physical to attract us to him, to Jesus. Remember, this is written hundreds of years before Jesus. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with the deepest grief. No kidding. We turned our backs on him. We looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Just read the stories of the crucifixion. And yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from his God, a punishment for his sins, even though he didn't have any. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, but God has laid all of our sins on him. And he's talking about the cross of Jesus. A few verses later, Isaiah the prophet says, because of his experience, my righteous servants will make it possible for many, for us to be counted as righteous because he's going to bear all of our sins. 
This was written 700 years before Jesus. You get to Psalm 22. It's another amazing text. Hundreds of years before Jesus. I'm just going to pull out a few pieces. Psalm 22 starts like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Recognize that from Jesus' cross? It says, I'm scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me, which happened at the trial and at the crucifixion. Read the story. It says, my life is poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. Think about what a crucifixion would do to a man. It says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Remember the nails? It says, they divide my garments among themselves and they throw dice for my clothing. Remember the Roman soldiers, the foot of the cross, when they're throwing dice for the clothes of Jesus? Another one of the Psalms, written hundreds of years before Jesus, says this, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. If you remember that detail from the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, they even found the resurrection of Jesus prophesied in the Old Testament. I'm telling you guys, a guy who predicts his own death and especially his own resurrection and then pulls it off deserves a hearing. And any man whose resurrection is prophesied hundreds of years before the event deserves a hearing. The psalmist said, you will not leave my soul among the dead. You'll not allow your holy one to rot in the grave. And when Peter stands up to preach on the day of Pentecost, he cites this verse and he says, that was Jesus. They found prophecies of Jesus that he would be called the son of man, which is a strange title. That he'd be called the son of God, that he would set the captives free, which means us. We find prophecies that he would establish a new covenant between God and man, which we celebrate every single week in this Lord's Supper. He said, if you want to dig deeper into this stuff, just Google 55 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. It'll take you to this website under jesusfilm.org. It just pulls out 55 of them. Some people think there are as many 300 prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. I think that stretches it quite a lot. But some of the prophecies are specific enough that the mathematical probability of Jesus fulfilling even a few of them is what they call staggeringly improbable, if not impossible. Couldn't have happened. There's a math professor out in California who tried calculating the odds. He picked out just eight. Eight of the very specific prophecies of Jesus, and he calculated the odds. And he says the odds that any one person would satisfy just those eight prophecies is about one, his calculation, about one in 10 to the 17th power. Take a one, put 17 zeros after it. It's a big, big number. In a journal called Science Speaks, the professor put it like this. He says, suppose we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and we spread them out over the face of Texas, the state of Texas, pretty big state, right? They would cover the state two feet deep. And now take a guy and blindfold that guy and just send him off walking across the state of Texas until he decides to stoop down and pick up just one of those coins. What are the chances that he would pick up just the right coin? He says, just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, provided they use their own wisdom without the guidance of God. 
Guys, this stuff is mind-blowing. The Jews knew the Messiah was coming. They'd been expecting his coming for hundreds, even thousands of years. God had been dropping all of these breadcrumbs across the Old Testament story. And I'm telling you guys, when God says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. So some of the Jews are excited, waiting for the Messiah. Some are nervous, like Herod. And everybody was surprised when the Messiah shows up as a baby born to peasant kids from a backwater town called Nazareth. That's why we celebrate December the 25th every year. It's not about tinsel and lights first. It's about Jesus, the dividing line of history. Every time you write down the date, 2018, you're doing homage to Jesus, the dividing line of history. Listen, guys, I don't mind Black Friday and Cyber Monday. You can get some great deals. It's kind of fun. I don't mind Santa Claus and Christmas trees, family stuff. That's why I spent all afternoon setting up all of the decorations in the church. You saw, you saw my work today when you got in here? It's pretty good. I did all that. I did all that. It's fun. Just keep it in perspective. Too often we make Christmas about us. We take what is holy and trivialize it into a celebration of us. Matthew reminds us that it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about him. It's about Jesus. As I said before, guys, if a guy can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, he deserves a hearing. And if Jesus' birth and his ministry and his death and his resurrection were prophesied hundreds of years before they ever happened, then you better pay attention to what he has to say. Listen to what he has to say. He says, we're lost without him. He says, none of us has a chance with God without him. And that's what we need most is a chance with God. And he says, I'm your chance. I'm the one who came to save you. I'm the one who took your sins to my cross. That's why I came. That's why I was born. But you've got to bend your knees to Jesus. Have you done that yet? And if you have, are you living it out? Are you making it real? Listen, guys, what are you going to do this Christmas season to remind yourself that he is the reason for this season? What are you going to do this year to remind yourself and those who watch you that he's the center of this whole thing, that you're going to do something way bigger than bowing your knees to the idol of a Christmas tree? Why don't you pray with me? Father, it's an amazing story. And if it happened the way that your word says, it's got to be your hand. It's got to be your power. And if it happened the way that the Bible says it did, every one of us ought to be bending our knees to this Jesus. He's that big. It's that it's that magical, that important. And I pray that during this season, every one of us in this room will do him the honor that he deserves. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.